0: He's led the Russian Federation for most of the last two decades. How does Vladimir Putin get such strong support from Russian voters?
1: Putin gave people back the idea that it is a great country, but it also a country that is part of the world, which the Soviet Union never was. Nina Khrushcheva is the granddaughter of
0: Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev. She lives in the U.S. now, but recently traveled the vast Russian outback to figure out why so many support a strongman president. She tells us what she found in just a bit. It's costing billions, but they can't afford to argue over climate change in the Netherlands. Instead, they're preparing for rising sea levels with some impressive engineering projects. If we don't have dikes, and the sea and the labor level are the highest points, we lose half the country.
2: It's a lot of taxes, but um, it's worth it because you want to keep your feet dry.
0: We look at Dutch strategies for combating climate change in Putin's Russia in the hour ahead. It's travel with Rick Steves. What makes so many Russians in its far-flung territories continue to support President Vladimir Putin and his policies? Nina Khrushcheva reveals what she found that unites people all across Russia's 11 time zones. It's coming up a little later in the hour on today's Travel with Rick Steves. The Netherlands, it's a country that's essentially below sea level, and it's lived with the threat of the sea since its very start. As the effects of climate change begin showing themselves, the rise of the sea is a real threat to low-lying countries. We're joined today by two Dutch guides, Jodi van Engelsdorp and Hans de Kiefta. And they've grown up in Holland, and they're going to share the Dutch view of climate change. Yodi and Hans, thanks for being here. Thanks for having us.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Yodi, tell us what it's like growing up as a kid in the Netherlands, knowing you live below sea level.
2: I don't think you really realize it as a kid. Of course, we learn a lot about it. And the thing that is mandatory in the Netherlands is to actually have your swimming license. You should know how to swim. So that's how we get in contact with that. We need to know how to swim. So that's kind of how they prepare us for the next flood, I guess. I've but heard
0: that the kids in the Netherlands even learn to swim with shoes on and, and their clothes Yes,
2: on. we have a test with full clothing on, swimming in the swimming pool. But we're very well protected. I think it's one in 10,000 years chance that we might flood again because we're so well protected. Is that
0: right? So you must look at the news when you see a a city in another part of the world that's having a a storm surge and being inundated, like New York, like New Orleans, and so on. You must kind of go, we've got it figured out.
2: We do. And uh, that's always what the people do when they have a problem like that. They call the Dutch, and the Dutch always come and offer their help.
0: So Hans, when you think about climate change... Has that impacted your, your life as a Dutchman? How do you see climate change from your vantage point in the Netherlands? I sometimes jokingly say we're not the smartest people on earth because if we don't have dikes and
3: the sea and the labor level are at the highest points, we lose half the country. So we made a lot of dikes. It cost us from 1954 to 1997 $13 billion to mm. build all those dikes. And we plan to spend $144 billion. From 2008 onwards, we started already planning till the year 2100.
0: 140. You've got a plan. Uh, this yeah. is a
3: massive plan. Yes, that will be spent from now on, more or less, till the year 2100. But
0: you Dutch are so famous for being frugal and not wasting money. Well, we mean, don't want to drown. But I mean, <laughs> ma- maybe there is no climate change. The Dutch know what they're doing because they've been measuring the sea level for
3: the longest. So uh, you believe there, there is climate the, change? I believe there's change. Um, well, oh, I can give you an example. My father skated every winter. I skated every winter, second winter. It was already warming up. There was a period of 11 years without any skating at all, which ended about five years ago. And last year, there was only one week with ice and I had a flu. <laughs> and then it was over. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm seeing some proof. So let's say, let's like that. I hope it's not true. I hope all the skeptics are right.
0: In fact, if you spent all that money and there was no climate change, that would be okay. It uh, will so still be okay
3: because then we are safe, and also to remember that the whole world has problems with their harbors. Yeah. I mean, most people live along the seashore. Yeah. Why is this? Sea transportation. Right. It's the cheapest transportation on Earth, and more than 90% of all transportation on Earth is done by seaship. Wow. So, the, most, the biggest infrastructure of the whole world is on the shores. And who are the specialists? Who are you going to call? Not the Ghostbusters, but you're, <laughs> kind of,
0: you're going to call the Dutch, right? And the Dutch are great business people and they'll see any sort of challenge as a business opportunity. Yes, that's right. It's a big industry. You're, you're exporting engineers to help people uh, build their barriers against a rising sea. Oh, yes, the Dutch working all over the world with all
3: kinds... They only work in New York, right, at the moment. The estimate uh, of the Dutch uh, are is that till 2100, the sea will rise four feet. And from 2100 till 2200, it will rise 12 feet.
0: Holy cow. Yes. Just four feet, when you think about that, if you're living in the Netherlands, you've got to spend some money on your infrastructure. I was just in the Netherlands, and I saw these industrial ships just offshore spewing uh, sand and mud, and they were actually bolstering dikes and so on. What is happening there when you see that? Well,
3: we have a coastal line. These are dunes. Mm -hmm. These dunes have been there for ages. But if the re- sea really rises, then they deteriorate a bit, you know, but they're, they're mm-hmm. quite strong still. And it's very expensive to, to raise the beaches all the time everywhere. So what they do is they have these big ships, they suck up sand from the North Sea, they sail to the coast, and in the south, just north of the Rotterdam there, where the harbor is, Hook of Holland, they deposit it in
0: one oh, point. so that's what they're doing. These then, have been like vacuum cleaners. They sucked up the sand in one area and they bring it to where it's needed. Yeah, and they put it in the sea. Yeah. And the current
3: takes it all along the coast.
0: So and I wondered about that because they're just squirting sand into the sea, yeah, but, but they know the current will take it and, yes. and it'll make the dunes stronger. Right, and it will spread out
3: over the beach and then the wind will blow it on the dunes and that will protect us.
0: Now, Yodi, that's expensive. How does a small country like the Netherlands afford uh, tens of billions of dollars of uh, reinforcement for rising sea?
2: Well, we all pay our taxes, Rick. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's, it's taxes, isn't it?
2: It's a lot of taxes it's we expensive. pay, yeah. But um, it's worth it because you want to keep your feet dry. And the Netherlands, we have since the 1100s have started this internal struggle with nature. So
0: you've been Keep... at it for 900 years. Yeah,
2: so <laughs> we know how to work together. We have to work together, otherwise it will not get fixed. Yeah. This
0: is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with two guides from the Netherlands, Jodi van Engelsdorp and Hans de Kiefta. We're talking about the Dutch and how they're dealing with climate change. Yodi, when you think of the infrastructure, I was just at the uh, storm surge barrier outside of Rotterdam. It's a massive uh, gate. They say it's as big as two Eiffel Towers put on their side on wheels, and it can roll closed, and when you've got a perfect storm of conditions, it threatens more than a million people in the Rotterdam area, and they can protect it with this storm surge barrier. Maaslandkering. 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 And what are some other things that the Dutch are investing in? Do you have some grand project, or is it a little bit here and a little bit there?
2: Well, at the moment, we are actually building the biggest lock of Europe. Antwerp has it now, and uh, we are building it for the port of Amsterdam. It is done in Amuiden, uh which is where the canal goes from Amsterdam. And uh, yeah, they're building the biggest lock. So uh, yeah, they're building bigger ships, so we need bigger locks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they have a really nice museum there. So if anyone is interested and in the neighborhood, I definitely recommend going there so you can see them building the lock and also have kind of an interactive experience in the museum called SHIP.
0: The museum is called SHIP. Yeah. S-H-I-P. Yeah. Outside Mm -hmm. of Amsterdam in Eimunden.
2: Eimunden, yeah.
0: Hans, when you're thinking about Rotterdam, you were born and raised in Rotterdam, how is the infrastructure of the city evolving to anticipate more problems with the sea? I understand there's lots of ways that reservoirs and retention ponds are being designed by engineers. Uh, this is part of a bigger plan, which is the whole southwest of the
3: Netherlands. It's very complicated to explain uh, just simply, but basically the rivers are getting more flooded by r- rain. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, the rains are getting heavier in the Alps, the snow mel- melts quicker, and if it all comes together, the Rhine and the Maas go really high. And then if you have a storm surge from the sea at the same time, and those gates near Rotterdam, which you said, are closing. You get the pressure from the back, and the river cannot hmm. empty out in the sea. That's and then it problem. would flood Rotterdam from the river part.
0: Either way, you can get it coming or going. Yeah, you come from both sides. So what did they? Because the Netherlands is kind of a, a delta. It's kind of like the it's gutter of Europe. Yes, we're at the lowest point. You got all these rivers emptying into the sea there,
3: and it is below sea level. Yeah, if you land at Amsterdam, you're four and a half meters below sea level. So what they did for a solution is they made a site. They lead the water to a very mm. big retaining parts more south of Rotterdam. They can store it there for more than six hours. In the meantime,
0: the tide will go down, and when it's down, they, they slowly put it back in the river, and it, uh, it doesn't flood the country. You must look at some other societies that are not so patient and smart about this and, mm. and just shake your head and think, no, you cannot develop that land because you need to have that to absorb the water when, when necessary.
3: You know, luckily we are a rich country, uh, but we did one thing which is unique in the world. we have It's a tradition which fares back to the year 1000, and that is that the water board, or the water management system, are allowed to levy their own tax, and they're independent from the state. They're a state within the state. Of course they're controlled and checked, but they decide what happens, and they have counts, they have the old names of nobility... Dyke counts, etc. So let's say there's a flood coming. Right. The dike count is called. It's a volunteer. The dike count, he's got education, but he's still a volunteer. He goes to the dike and he walks on the dike to see if nothing breaks, right? Uh huh. But then let's say there's a big flood. The dike counts have all the power, more than the military. They say, "I oh, need your car." They say, can say, "You have to leave your house," because of course. The flood is coming. Mandatory advocacy, uh, evacuation. evacuation. So they're very powerful. And why did they do this? They did this after the flood of 1953. The government in a crisis period, they have a big buffer. They must have a big buffer for calamities, etc. And they have big plans coming, so the, the money is slowly saved to make a big dike over ten years or twenty yeah. years, and yeah. then they need it, and then the money is there. The money must always be there. What happens in a crisis, like two thousand eight? The government thinks, hey, there's a few billion there. Oh, so you need to separate. We you need we to protect could, it. We could use it now, right? No, no. it's a state within the state. And it's, law. and it's
0: dedicated only for protection only for against protection. the sea.
3: And that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money, but still, I pay per year approximately 110 euro to keep my feet dry. And, that's mm. in, <laughs> and that even. Mm-hmm. In, it's so worth that's it. <laughs> you, you,
0: you happily pay 110 euros a yeah. year to keep your feet oh, dry. And, <laughs> and this is the one f- tax people love to pay. <laughs> so yeah. Everybody pays without grumpy, <laughs> grumps. I, I would imagine. That. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking the Netherlands and a rising sea. We've been joined by Hans de Kiefte and Jodi van Engelsdorp. Let's just finish our conversation by sharing for a traveler, if you want to have an experience related to the dunes and the dikes and the infrastructure, what single thing would you recommend doing, Uh, Hans?
3: The Delta area, which is in the south of Rotterdam, Uh uh, that's the area where the big, big dike and storm surge barriers are, etc. Uh, so a visit there is really worth it. If you don't have that much time, the King, which you just explained, near Rotterdam with the big, big doors, that's very, they have a very good uh, visitor center and also they do
0: tours there. So there'd be visitor centers, like if we go to a big dam or yeah, something yeah. in our country, there's a visitor and center. And they explain the whole system. Yodi, what would you recommend?
2: I would also think the King is a very good place to go. And otherwise, the new building SHIP. They just opened this year and I think they're doing a great job. It's very interactive. And it's fun the, for that's everyone. And the,
0: the museum uh, in the big port near Amsterdam. And yes. the museum is called Just Simply SHIP.
2: SHIP, yeah. And they're building the biggest lock. So it's fun. You can yourself try to let in a ship in the port of Amsterdam well of course it's all Whoa. fake but all right. we see how it goes but you get a
0: little hands on interactive yeah. experience there Yodi and Hans dank u dank wel, wel. And tot ziens good luck with the sea yes It's a rare look into Russia and the people who live in its remote corners, far from all the things that big city Moscow and St. Petersburg have to offer. Russian-born Nina Khrushcheva takes us in Putin's footsteps in search of the soul of Russia. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. After being elected president four times now, Vladimir Putin has led the Russian Federation for more than 15 years and he's consistently far more popular with his people than any American president is in the United States. So what accounts for his popularity at home? Nina Khrushcheva teamed up with writer Jeffrey Taylor from Moscow to see why Putin's approval ratings are so high in Russia. In researching her book, she explored what life was really like for people in the heartland of Russia and what they're saying about their leader. She's been living and teaching in New York now for most of her adult life, and Nina Khrushcheva joins us now to talk about her book, In Putin's Footsteps, Searching for the Soul of an Empire Across Russia's 11 Time Zones. Nina, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. First of all, your surname is the name that we all know, Khrushchev. Uh, What's the connection with you and Nikita Khrushchev?
1: He is my grandfather, and my A at the end, sometimes I'm asked, why am I not Nina Khrushchev? is because I'm a woman and Russian language has genders. Okay. Khrushchev, your
0: grandfather ruled the USSR through much of the Cold War until 1964. I'm curious, as his granddaughter, you must be tuned into how history views this man. What is your sense of how Western history sees your grandfather?
1: Western history is kind to Khrushchev, despite the fact that he was leader of the Soviet Union at the height of the Cold War. Mm -hmm. Because... I think the West in the United States particularly recognizes that he wanted to reform Stalinism. He wanted to make the Soviet Union more livable after Joseph Stalin died in 1953. In Russia, they are not that generous to him. Like all reformers, he unfortunately doesn't have a good legacy. And it not only applies to Khrushchev, but also to Mikhail Gorbachev, the last president of the Soviet Union, to Boris Yeltsin, the first Russian president. So all those leaders mm. who try to democratize the Kremlin monoliths, they in fact do not have really great reputation
0: because that was a fifty year process easily from nineteen fifty three when Stalin died. How do you take apart that monolithic uh, dictatorship kind of society? Khrushchev was quite bold in de-Stalinization in the 1950s. What was de-Stalinization?
1: When Stalin died and uh, the leaders surrounded him, they were at a loss because it did seem that God died. Hmm. The conversation was whether they should continue as a Stalin cohort or they should find out how to make this monolith less monolithic and power more divided. And ultimately, Khrushchev won in that debate. He essentially then became a leader of the country. He was the prime minister, and his changes were grand. I mean, they're very big, important changes from freeing people from the gulags, the essentially concentration camps, detention camps, where millions and millions of Soviets were forced to do forced labor because that was kind of Stalin industrialization attempt, uh, mm-hmm. to uh, freeing people from prisons, to opening the Soviet Union to the world in 1957. And so these were some changes that Khrushchev initiated, and they were all part of destalinization, that mm-hmm. is making life more livable.
0: I remember last time I was in St. Petersburg, talking about destalinization, my own little game was to try to find anything visual that related to Joseph Stalin, and and there's almost nothing that you see anywhere on the subways or on the buildings or in the halls of of art or anything that has any relationship to the man who was the god of Russia until 1953.
1: Not in Moscow. In Moscow, you go into a subway station on Kurskaya, and his name just emblazoned in gold now. In I think 2006, the station was renovated, and uh, originally words from the Soviet anthem with Stalin's name were written in the station, on, on the ceiling. Uh-huh. And when it was renovated, it was restored back to what it was before destalinization. So you can see him there. Uh-huh. There are a few statues in Moscow now, in uh, Yakutsk, uh, in the coldest place on Earth. In town, uh, you can see Stalin bust. I mean, it is part of the private firm that deals in diamonds. But here you are. You can pass by Stalin and... I even when I was went there to see the bust, I witnessed. Uh, very interesting scene. There were older people, some of them were Communist Party. They were arguing with the younger people who were throwing dung pieces into mm-hmm. the Stalin bust. So there was well, this debate between the old and the new. Well, that's ongoing
0: in Russia, I would think. And your book, In Putin's Footsteps, is searching for the soul of an empire across Russia's 11 time zones. This is a book that gives you a sense of the vast nature of Russia and the tumultuous history. And when you travel around Russia, you find uh, one generation a city would be called St. Petersburg, and the next generation Petrograd, and the next generation Leningrad, and the next generation back to St. Petersburg. And you could have a great city called Stalingrad. What is Stalingrad today?
1: Stalingrad is Volgagrad uh, mm-hmm. today. Volgadrad. And there was I a see. big, on Volga, and there was a big debate whether it should be renamed back like the Kurskaya station, subway station in Moscow, where they should be renamed back into Stalingrad because it was a great victory in World War Two. It was sort of the breaking point of ah. World War Two when it became clear that... Nazis probably are not going to take over Europe, not going to take over the world, and was the breaking point. There's a discussion about making Volgograd once
0: again Stalingrad?
1: Absolutely. I mean, that's why I'm so uh, not surprised because St. Petersburg certainly doesn't have those visible references to Stalin, but many other places have, and uh, Mm -hmm. uh, there is a big debate because Stalin is more popular. You mentioned Putin's popularity. Stalin is more popular than Putin because he gathered lands. He stood up to the menacing bourgeois capitalist West. Right. You know, he met with the great leaders of the world. The Soviet Union was most instrumental in, in winning World War Two. So there's a great reverence. I mean, people forgot what horrible gulag past mm-hmm. the Soviet Union under Stalin had. And now the memory is what one time a friend of mine said, well, we were killed and imprisoned, but our parades were great. Nina Khrushcheva is a professor of international affairs at the New School
0: in New York City. She's also a member of the World Affairs Council. You'll see her byline in major American publications. Nina wrote In Putin's Footsteps with Jeffrey Taylor. He's an American born writer and journalist who covers Russia from Moscow. Their book combines history and current affairs into a travelogue into each of Russia's 11 time zones. We have a link to the book and recent articles Nina's written with the notes for this week's show. That's at ricksteves.com slash radio. When we think about Russia today, a striking thing is this phenomenon of Vladimir Putin's persistent popularity. What do you think explains why Putin, for how many years now, has been consistently uh, much more popular than most American presidents would ever hope to be?
1: Well, there are many reasons for that, and there's a lot of discussions about that. And just incidentally, Putin's popularity went down significantly in recent month. Uh, that, sig- significantly, it would it be? Significantly to, I think it's about 56%, which for a Russian leader is like 18% in the United States. Okay, so, uh, so normally be-
0: Putin's up at 70 or it's 75. 75. Yeah. I
1: mean, if he's 65, that is slightly embarrassing and then, of course, he'd like to be 85 and higher. Right. And when uh, Russia annexed Crimea from Ukraine in 2014, that's the popularity was up to 90. So that's how okay. they want to so be So I that. think
0: Russians just, they want a great leader, a czar, it seems like. Russia needs They a want a great man.
1: leader, but also one of the reasons we were interested in doing this trip is because it is an empire. It still is an empire. Russia continues to understand itself in imperial terms Mm -hmm. and uh, as all empires they do think that they should be the most important ones in the world but also it's 11 time zones I mean it's a country that takes the whole continent I mean the United States takes half of it but Russia takes tremendous amount it's the largest country on earth and its west side is in Germany, in Kaliningrad, what used to be German city of Königsberg. So it's bordering with Poland and going deep into Europe. And the other side is the Pacific Ocean. So it is a humongous country. And in order to people to identify themselves with something, they identify themselves with this clock tower on the Kremlin, the Red Square. It's the final understanding of itself. And so I think the image of the Tsar... Comes with it, because the country is so diverse mm-hmm. and vast that somehow the united instance of it is exactly that it 's the central power
0: Nina, when you traveled across Russia to understand uh, the popularity of Putin, I wonder if there 's parallels to the United States because in the United States. If we look at the divide between uh, conservative people and liberal people, it's the big cities and the coastal areas that tend to be more liberal, and the heartland and the small towns tend to be more conservative. Now, Russia has the same sort of dynamic going on that a lot of countries have. You've got a, a rise in popularity of Stalin. You've got an autocratic leader, Putin, that is popular because he's making the country strong. It's this new kind of nationalism. Who is Putin's base? Is it divided like it is in the United States?
1: I mean, you're absolutely right that uh, the dynamic is similar. I mean, in all countries, you have people in the cities, they're always more liberal, uh, or most of them are more liberal. And then you have the heartland, even if smaller countries, there is a heartland where people are more conservative, more traditional. So Russia is certainly not different in that regard. But I would say, though, that in Moscow, even in St. Petersburg, in big cities, there are also, plenty of supporters of Putin. I mean, mm-hmm. certainly his big numbers do come from the heartland, but I would not say that they're not support. I mean, there's certainly more supporters of Putin in Moscow than there are supporters of Donald Trump in New York. But Putin's base is that um, sort of heartland. When right. you know all these foreigners going to take our life and and uh, change us, and we are great wonderful Russia. So it's a but similar dynamic
0: we, in Poland, it's a similar dynamic in Hungary exactly. now, and in Turkey, and it's a, a Absolutely. fascinating... Uh,
1: I don't think Russia is that original in this, <laughs> but be, once again, I think because Russia is so big, all the problems or all the kind of trends, they get exasperated.
0: Right. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Nina Khrushcheva. She's the granddaughter of Nikita Khrushchev, who was the premier, the dictator of the Soviet Union back in the Cold War, back in the 50s and early 60s.
1: He was not a dictator. I just want to interrupt you right away. He wasn't a dictator. He was the premier, (laughs) and
0: Americans look at him like he didn't really embrace democracy, but he was an effective leader of the Soviet Union in the years after Stalin. And uh, Nina's book is called In Putin's Footsteps, Searching for the Soul of an Empire Across Russia's 11 Time Zones. She traveled all across Russia to get a sense of what made the Russian electorate tick? And, Nina, we're talking about the persistent popularity of Putin. Last time I was in Russia, I was in St. Petersburg with a friend who, who lives there, and we were in a very popular restaurant called the Schengen Restaurant, named after the treaty that lets people travel freely in Europe. And I asked my friends there, why is Putin so popular? And one thing they said is the right to travel was a big deal. They could just cross over into the Schengen area and travel everywhere. So all they needed was a permission to go to Finland, and Europe was their playground. They also stressed how you've got to keep it in a Russian perspective. Stability is a beautiful thing, and they've got stability with Putin. Respect in the world is a big thing, and they've got respect with Putin. And relative to the past, economically, these are good times. People are poor, but these are relatively good times. Is that the general sentiment that would be the the rock upon which Putin's popularity sits?
1: Absolutely. You just said everything for me. I don't need to say anything more. That's such a wonderful summary of why, indeed, most of his popularity comes in. But it's not just in St. Petersburg, and I think that is also incredibly important because what we've discovered is that to Moscow is no longer the sentiment in Russia. People don't need to go to Moscow because hmm. cities have become comfortable or comfortable enough, more comfortable than they've ever been in yeah. Russian history, not just the Soviet history. And uh, not everywhere, I think, in St. Petersburg, yes, they do have permission to go to Finland. In Kaliningrad, they go to Poland and Germany. In uh, Lagaveshinsk, which is not Europe, it's on the border, on Amur River, on the border with China, you can go to China visa-free. Putin gave back the idea that it is a great country, but it also a country that is part of the world, hmm. which the Soviet Union never was. And so I think that was his continued popularity. It's starting failing. Because I think all this anti-Western and generally militant adventures that Putin's Russia had in Syria, in Ukraine, people want to concentrate on their own needs or want him to concentrate on their needs rather than go and either save the world or fight the West. Our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves is Nina Khrushcheva. She's the co-author of In
0: Putin's Footsteps. In her new book, she describes her adventures across the entire Russian Federation to better understand the issues people face and the popularity of President Vladimir Putin. She's also written Imagining Nabokov and The Lost Khrushchev. We have a link to her website and books with this week's show notes at ricksteves.com radio. Now, Nina, there's another dimension, I think, to the popularity, which you wrote in the book uh, by quoting a joke. I, I thought this was quite interesting. You said there's a joke going around in Russia about President Vladimir Putin, and it says that Putin has failed to build us a great future, so he built us a great past. What's meant by that?
1: That he's a strong leader. He's a leader that brings lands together. I mean, he brought Crimea back under the Russian fold. His Russia is respected, Um leaders of the world listen to his views, and that is the tradition that Russians think that the czars always had, that Mm -hmm. uh, Stalin was this kind. I mean, one of the things that we noticed which was remarkably interesting is that Reformers like Khrushchev, like Gorbachev, like Yeltsin, they're not really existing in Russian history or throughout Russia as historical figures that much. Mm -hmm. But it is Stalin, very important. Putin, of course, is very important. And the czars before. So there's all these statues that are being built all over Russia to... Ivan the Terrible. I mean, who would want to celebrate Ivan the Terrible? Wow. He's terrible. so you
0: saw that in your travels, this resurgence and of respect for the big shots.
1: Absolutely, the big mm-hmm. shots, the mm-hmm. ones that made Russia great, Nicholas yeah. I.
0: Make Russia great again. It leads us to compare how these two leaders appeal to their base? We know Trump will play to his base with rallies and with Twitter and with Fox News. What tools does Putin have to play to his base?
1: Putin's base is different. It's larger. It's more across the board to some degree. Just remember that when Putin came in in 2000, that's when he first became president. He's been in power essentially for 19 years now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when he first became president, Russia was a punching bag of the West. Boris Yeltsin was an elderly drunk. Everybody was laughing at Russia. It was corrupt to, to no end openly. It was chaotic. There was no, there's all this great capitalism that everybody is discussing. It was mm-hmm. people were killed in the streets and suddenly this younger man comes in and Russia always had geriatric or Soviet Union had geriatric leaders and suddenly the young man comes in And I think in the first year, he traveled more than Yeltsin throughout the whole presidency. Mm -hmm. He went everywhere. He went to London. He went to Siberia. And so suddenly, Russians saw that it is a country that can be led into something that is not just the past. And it is ironic that Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that Putin touts the most is how great Russian past was. But he was pragmatic, and he had people with managerial skills. And so certain things got into order, into certain systems that were allowed for uh, livable conditions. Of course, mm-hmm. with that came uh, restrictions, some oppressions. But in many ways, Russia was brought into the order, but not the gulag order, not the Stalin order, the order in which you can live and be relatively free and travel. And I think that kind of made him popular for years to come. It's kind of a pragmatic pragmatic
0: autocracy.
1: Absolutely.
0: We're getting to know the soul of today's Russia with the insights of Nina Khrushcheva on Travel with Rick Steves. We'll look at the Russian view for taking back the Crimean Peninsula from Ukraine in just a minute. Ich reise mit Rick Steves. I'm Ursula Klaus from Vienna, and that was in Viennese German, I travel with Rick Steves. Ich reise mit Rick Steves. Thank you. The spotlight is on today's Russia, with the insights Nina Khrushcheva gained by exploring the country right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Nina was born into a prominent political family in Russia. you probably heard of her grandfather, Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev. Nina's lived in the United States ever since attending graduate school at Princeton. Now she teaches international affairs at the New School in Manhattan. She explored Mother Russia with co-author Jeffrey Taylor to meet people in places we never hear about and to assess Vladimir Putin's political base far from Russia's major cities. Their book is called In Putin's Footsteps, Searching for the Soul of an Empire Across Russia's 11 Time Zones. It's published by St. Martin's Press. When you consider that Russia's GDP is like 20% of the United States, uh, under Putin's leadership, Russia really is punching above its weight.
1: Well, it is. And that's what another thing that keeps him popular, although people do want to think about their fridge rather than the fact that, you know, suddenly Russia is listened or taken into consideration because, you know, we went through this. It has been tw- almost 20 years enough. Now right. we want the, our fridge to be uh, uh-huh. to be filled and, and jobs to be better and our pensions to exist when you retire. But absolutely, it was a very pragmatic way of approaching So he was... A good manager, the problem with a good manager who also has a KGB past, as we know, he was a colonel in the KGB, is that he brings all this past idiosyncrasies with him. He mm-hmm. Even he doesn't want to believe that the West is out to get him. He can't not believe that the West is out to get him just because that's how he was trained. That was his job. So ultimately, the big power idea gets into his head. I mean, I don't know mm-hmm. when Italians build our Kremlin, our Russian Kremlin, probably they put some Borgias or, mm-hmm. or their own despotism parts in those walls. They poison them somehow. But just to even with Khrushchev, when I said he was not a dictator, he certainly was a. Russian autocrat, but he was right. not a dictator. He was not Stalin in in any way. But my grandmother always said that Khrushchev of nineteen fifty six this is the year when Khrushchev openly denounced Stalin. Khrushchev of nineteen fifty six is not Khrushchev of nineteen sixty two, which was the year of the Cuban Missile Crisis.
0: Now that's interesting. In reading your book, I was fascinated to realize that there's really a case for Russia taking back the Crimea because. I guess Russia gave the Crimea to the Ukraine in 1954 under your grandfather and uh, for a particular reason and then decided it was better to take it back uh, a couple generations later.
1: Well, that sounds simple. Uh, (laughs) Indeed. And so Khrushchev, he didn't give it to Crimea. It was a managerial administrative decision because both Ukraine and Russia were the republics within the USSR, the Soviet Union. And so it was a simple, not very simple solution because geographically, Crimea is connected to Ukraine, but it's not connected to uh, okay. Russia by land, and that's why, as you know, now the big story that there is a, a bridge, uh, the, the Russians build the bridge <laughs> and there's uh, all this drama. Okay, with, uh, so
0: let me, let me try to figure this out then. So, in the 50s, when your grandfather was running the show, the USSR was an administrative uh, collection of states, and while Crimea was ethnically Russian or historically Russian, it just made more sense to have it administered by Ukraine because of the, it was in the same land mass. Now, much later, when we no longer have this collection of states run by Moscow, but we have Russia and Ukraine as separate states, independent, we've got a bridge that connects the ethnic Russians to their Russian homeland, from the Crimea. So from Russia's point of view, it's just time to bring the Crimea back into the Russian fold.
1: Well, that's what Putin's explanation. Of course, the Crimea is the beginning ancestral land for both Russians and Ukrainians. But because Ukraine, for much of its history, was most of Ukraine was part of the Russian empire, so it was considered Russian. Mm -hmm. But when the Soviet Union was created. Mm-hmm. Ukraine was a republic within the Soviet Union. So for Khrushchev, it was just taking one unit and you right. know moving from Connecticut to New Jersey or so whatever it's more New York to Connecticut. More complicated. But I think the problem with Putin is that it could have been done, and perhaps even people in Crimea wanted to become part of Russia. I wouldn't doubt that necessarily, but it was done not legally. It was not Mm -hmm. done according to international laws, and I think that's where Putin's problem is.
0: And Nina, you did a lot of traveling to write this book. How homogenous is Russia? It spans 11 time zones. Do people feel like Russians all the way across?
1: It was surprising because I actually expected it to be much less homogeneous than it turned out to be. It is incredibly diverse, but at the same time, what I found quite interesting about Russia is that, I mean, I knew that being from Moscow and visiting a few places, but not like that. It really, it's the West that doesn't want to be the West. It's Europe that doesn't want to be one. But at the same time, it's absolutely obsessed with its either European identity or its identity that is not European. Mm-hmm. And wherever you go, even, you know, one of the stories that we have in the book, we were in Kuybyshev on Volga, There's a uh, town, Samara, now called, it was all this renaming. So now it's called Samara, the old name, and uh, it is on Volga, and they have this very, very long and very beautifully, very well done embankment. And people in Samara would say, this is the longest embankment in Europe, and they're very proud of it. Mm -hmm. And then we ask them, so are you in Europe? No, we are not. And so Ah, that ah. kind of this split personality disorder is quite shocking, and it goes across all Russia. The same thing even in Kaliningrad in former Germany, Königsberg, Immanuel Kant, the great philosopher... Is there Lenin? I mean, they celebrate his existence because he's such an important world philosopher and he was born there. But at the same time they say, well, the West is out to get us. We're all border guards here because mm. we have to be vigilant. It's like, wait a minute, how can you celebrate a German philosopher and mm. then be obsessed with Germany trying to take you mm. over? The double eagle that is our Russian coat of arms
0: right. is quite appropriate. And it's on the cover of your book. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Nina Khrushcheva. Her book is In Putin's Footsteps. And, Nina, I I would think one of the big challenges for Putin to be the big leader that Russia wants is to lead all of the people, to have people in all 11 time zones feel Russian. We have a president right now that plays to his base and doesn't really play to the rest of the country. Uh, Does Putin work to play to everybody, and does he work to bring that 11 time zones together?
1: in some way he does. I mean, he does play people feel Russian, but not Russian. I mean, there's actually under Yeltsin already this distinction appeared, which is Ruski and Rossiani, which is Russians and those of Russia. And so the Rossiani is those of Russia, those who are mm. in Russia. You don't have to be a Russian to be mm-hmm. a, a And in many ways, I mean, for example, in Yakutsk, when this autonomous republic, Yakutia they call themselves Saha. They are quite supportive of Putin precisely because he finally did what no Soviet leader ever did because they are rich in diamonds. They are rich in gold. They really could have been incredibly rich country if they were a country. And before that, the Moscow would take everything. Mm-hmm. And now I think 10, 20, whatever, how many percent stays in the republic. Mm. And for them, that is. A great development, and I think that is very good managerial, pragmatic thing that Putin's people, or maybe he himself, figured out that to keep them in the fold, you have to give them something so they can exist as their own independent peoples in that Russiani, that Rush, of Russian origins, fold.
0: So, in the measure of holding a struggling country together with a tumultuous past. Putin, in 20 years, has done a remarkable job. Most leaders, historically, of Russia and the USSR die in office. Putin's been in for four terms now. Uh, He's term-limited out, according to the Russian laws. He cannot have a fifth term. What do you think the future of Vladimir Putin is, politically?
1: That's a billion-trillion-dollar question. He is supposed to leave in 2024. Very few people think that he would, or... He may stop being president just because he's not going to change the constitution, but he will remain in power one way or another. I mean, it is a Mm -hmm. sad story from my point of view, but I don't think he can leave because if he leaves that somewhat oppressive system that he created and kind of making it more impressive by the day because the less his popularity goes, the more he needs to strengthen his hand. Mm. So if he leaves, there's so many people who would want to see him dead, disappeared, kind of the horrible Russian tragedy that would happen to him. So he would have to stay unless he figures out some formula, and I don't know if they have figured out the formula in which he can like Yeltsin, who gave power to Putin essentially, can stay alive but be out. And I I think we still have four more years to see how it's going to develop, but I would not be surprised if they change the constitution, build more gulags and basically Hmm. just go back to what dictatorship is all about.
0: I mean, the USSR was an empire. It was collecting different nationalities together. Is Russia a nation or is it an empire in itself?
1: Well, it is a nation now, but I think its view of itself and the world is quite imperial. Of course, it shed territories, the uh, republics such as Georgia, Ukraine. Yeah,
0: but within uh, Russia, just what we think of as Russia proper, is that a collection of nationalities? Maybe it is, but it, does it see itself as a nation? Because the USSR was a collection of, of states, really.
1: Well, the USSR, so it's of a collection of nationalities, right. and Russia continues to be a collection of nationalities. they are less nationalities than they were in I the see. USSR, and they're not that pronounced, but it's still a collection of nationalities. And uh, the empire part comes from the understanding that it doesn't only control the fate of its own territory, but it also controls or has influence over the fate of the territories around it.
0: Now, a big question within Russia, I I would think, is, are you Asian or are you European? Because most of it is actually in Asia, east of the Ural Mountains, right?
1: Well, territorially it is, but most... I mean, it's hard, what is a Russian now? Because Russia was under the Mongol yoke for... Two, three hundred years. So it's uh, parts of Russia very close to Mongolia. Mm-hmm. So a lot of Russians mixed over the history. I mean, Ukraine and Russians are very close. So a lot of that mixture is there. But generally, if you talk about a Russian, it is a European, Caucasian looking person. And if we talk about the East, the East was parts of Siberia, part of the Far East, where the Russians, the Cossacks, those from The center would come and conquer those territories and take them away from the Chinese Mm -hmm. more often. In other parts, they would be in more northern parts, western parts, they would be fighting with the Norwegians for those territories on the White Sea. So most Russians are Caucasians, but once again, it's too simplistic to say because Russians are all sorts.
0: Nina Khrushcheva gained insight into her homeland by teaming up with a Moscow-based journalist to talk to people living across all 11 of its time zones. They looked for the soul of Russia in far-flung cities and remote hinterlands where President Putin's support is strongest. Their book is called In Putin's Footsteps. Nina's been living in New York City now for many years and teaches international affairs at the New School. She's also the author of Imagining Nabokov and The Lost Khrushchev. Now, when you think of Russia, 11 time zones, it's hard to get your brain around that and uh, the vastness of it all. I mean, the Trans-Siberian Railway is a good way to get a sense of that, I guess, and it's got to be the longest train ride you could take. China is five zones across, and in your book, In Putin's Footsteps, you point out that in China... Everything is Beijing time, right? It's got five time zones, but they don't change hours through that all. In Russia, they sort of make a point. Every time zone has its own time in a way that almost celebrates its vastness. How does Russia embrace that vastness, Uh, this notion of Mother Russia? What does that mean in people's minds way over in Vladivostok?
1: In Vladivostok, was a very interesting city. It's probably the most cosmopolitan city in, in Russia today. And uh, for them, Moscow is very far away. It is, mm-hmm. I think, it's eight-hour flight. So it's an incredibly, I mean, I think Moscow to New York is the same amount. So it is a very far away land. But China is right there. Japan, I think, at a two-hour flight, less than a two-hour flight. South Korea is right there. So they mm-hmm. are in many ways look east in their understanding of themselves. At the same time, they do consider themselves... European nation. And if you look at the say architecture of Vladivostok, it has references to all the places that Mm -hmm. in some ways they feel they're uniting. In fact, even the name Vladivostok is if in translation from Russian, it's rule the East. So they look all directions. And for them, Moscow time is something that you acknowledge, but it's not something necessarily that you live by.
0: Okay, now you traveled all across the 11 time zones to get a sense of who are the people of Russia, who is the electorate that keeps uh, Vladimir Putin in power and so on. What was your impression of the people these days, considering in the old days, my impression was Moscow and St. Petersburg were like the only great cities and everything else was provincial.
1: I actually think St. Petersburg actually is quite provincial, amazingly enough. They are provincial, but the difference now, I think, and that a lot of people give credit to Putin, is that cities have become livable. So the Mm -hmm. time zones become livable. You don't need to go to Moscow to go to the theater. You know, one of the greatest artistic cultural scenes are in Perm, which was remarkable. Mm -hmm. It's in the first city in the Ural Mountains. They call themselves the first city of Europe. That's where Europe begins. So you don't need to go... To places to have access to wonderful things, to wonderful restaurants. So relative to the
0: past, these are good times across very the very comfortable. Experience.
1: It is very comfortable times. I mean in many ways, Putin built those. I mean Putin Putin didn't, but cities got built to get better life elsewhere.
0: This is travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Nina Khrushchev. She's the granddaughter of Nikita Khrushchev. Her book is in Putin's footsteps. Nina, with all the travel you've done, can we just wrap it up with one moment that you experienced in a distant corner of this vast country that kind of summed up the Russian spirit of the people of this land?
1: We went to Magadan, which was an amazing place in Siberia. Ten months of that is winter and only two months is the summer. It was the distribution detention center during the Gulag era. It was sort of created as a forced labor camp And the worst detention camps, the political camps, were in that area, and you still see the scars of that. And we went to one of those camps. It was dealing with uranium enrichment. So you can imagine that any prisoner would last there only for three weeks and then die because they would be infected and radiated. It's essentially not reachable unless you really want to because radiation is still there and it's closed by nature from people who visit, so you have to work hard to get there. But we did. And you walk into one of these valleys, it was called the Valley of Death because it's so uranium rich that even in the nineteenth century when the local people would come and see the place they would be seeing all the skulls of deer that died because of radiation. And so when we walked into this valley with old buildings, old gulag buildings and they were right there thousands and thousands of prisoners' shoes that remained from the 1940s, the 1930s, the 1950s, and they're right in front of you, but nobody ever sees them. It's not like the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., when you go and see those Mm -hmm. the prisoners' shoes. It's that those shoes were breaking our hearts just for us because nobody else would see it. So we felt that it was our job to write about this so people would know that those souls... Are not lost and they continue to scream for Russia to reform and get different and stop being a country of tsars and gulags.
0: Wow. There's lots to be inspired by in your travels through Russia and there's lots to hope for as the people of Russia manage to live better than they have in the past and carve out a society that they're proud of in the future. Nina Khrushcheva, author of In Putin's Footsteps, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by
0: Tim Tatton and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. We get promotional support from Sheila Gerzoff. Thanks to our colleagues at the Radio Foundation in New York City for their help this week. You'll find guest information, program extras, and you can listen again on demand each
1: week in the radio section of
2: ricksteves.com.
1: Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. Europe Through the Back Door teaches the skills of smart travel. Travel as a political act adds meaning to the journey. And Rick Steves' best-selling country, city, and pocket guidebooks cover every corner of Europe. To learn more, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.